you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Colossians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the um, pew in front of you. We're going to be on page 1045 in the pew Bibles. <clears throat> uh, as always, if there's anything that strikes you uh, during the message today and you want to text in a question, you can use the uh, anonymous text number and we'll interact with those at the end. So let's, uh, before we get started, I'm going to pray one more time. We'll dive in. Lord God, we, um, we come before you with our Bibles open, um, with the recognition that this word that you have given us is our highest authority. It is the thing that we, uh, for those of us that follow Jesus, that we commit to putting ourselves underneath um, the lordship of Jesus Christ and um, the sovereignty of God expressed through the words of this book. And um, God, I just pray that we would be people that treasure it, that, that read it, that seek to understand it, that value it. Um, God, remind us often that there are many, many in our um, family in, in, in the family of God that do not have access to it in a language that they understand or access to it because their government prevents them from having one. Um, and so many of us have multiple physical copies and every translation conceivable on our smartphones. And um, that's a gift, but God, don't, um, don't let us um, ignore that gift. Help us to be students of your word. And as we open this passage this morning, I pray that your spirit would speak to us and move among us and prick our hearts, stir us up to good works. In Jesus' name, amen. So I came across some research from the Barna Group this week. They're a uh, Christian polling survey group, and they do uh, cultural statistics. And this recent study, I think it was from 2020, uh, revealed that only 25% of the American public are what they're identifying as practicing Christians. That means that they, strongly, they agree strongly that faith is very important in their lives and they have attended a church service within the past month, 25%. For another 43% are what they call non-practicing Christians. Those are people that would identify themselves as Christians, but they either do not think that faith is very important to their lives or they don't attend a church with any regularly, regularity or both. And then another 32% of Americans identify themselves as non-Christian. And so in a nation where we, we just have this kind of cultural assumption that Christianity is, is, is kind of a prevalent thing that we swim in. The reality is at least 75% of the people in our country have significant basic beliefs and a fundamental worldview that is different from you and I if we are people that say that we are Christians and we take that seriously and we pledge our allegiance to Jesus above all other things. And so, 
that results in some tension, doesn't it? Like as, as you either, as you interact with coworkers or friends or you watch the news and you see all of the cultural upheaval that's going on right now, there is a, um, there's some friction between those that would seek to follow Christ and live in a way that upholds the word of God and those that just aren't really interested in that or even actively hostile to that. So what do we do with that tension? We just finished a section in the book of Colossians called the Household Codes, and we took three weeks to take a look at all of these relationships in the Christian home, husbands and wives and fathers and children and slaves and masters, and and how that would have worked in a first century Greco-Roman context. And, And Paul does that because he wants to radically reshape what the family looks like based on who Jesus is. Because remember, in Colossians, Jesus is the greatest thing in existence. He is the creator of the universe. He is the image of the invisible God. He is so amazing and good, and he should shape everything about us. And so Paul moves on from this household code, talking about what your home should look like as a follower of Jesus, to this this question, how do we live a Christ-centered life in a wider culture that is not Christ-centered? And I want to take a look at three broad practices that Paul lays out for doing this. The first is prayer. The second is action. And the third is speech. So we'll start with prayer. Take a look at verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 of Colossians chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. In Paul's mind, prayer is incredibly important for the Christian. That's something that, um, there's kind of like, there's like a cultural meme right now. You've probably seen it where, where, you know, something awful happens. There's a, there's a natural disaster or a mass shooting or or some other terrible tragedy. And, and everybody's very quick to say, oh, sending our thoughts and prayers. And, and over the last couple of years, as politicians and public figures say this, a lot of people get really annoyed with that. They find it really problematic because, well, thoughts and prayers, they don't really do anything. We need action. And I understand the complaint there. I understand that many times the idea of offering thoughts and prayers are an excuse for not taking action in a situation where you have power to do so. But in Paul's mind, thoughts, well, maybe not thoughts, but prayers are really important. Prayer really matters. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. We are to be people that have a steady habit of prayer. Prayer is to be a consistent rhythm in our lives, a particular focus. And and Paul would primarily be talking about corporate prayer. Individual prayer is something that we experience as Christians, but as as an American, I am incredibly individually focused, and I need to constantly remind myself that in the first century, especially in a gathering where Paul is writing a letter to a group of people, he's fronting corporate prayer, gathering with other believers and praying together in addition to praying alone by yourself. He says, you need to be devoted to these things. I was, in, I was a part of a, I was a participant at a conference 
We actually had to live stream it. We couldn't go to the conference, but we watched it a couple months ago, and there was a, a debate, um, and one of the debaters was a, a guy uh, uh, who I love, uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs, who's a professor at Western Seminary in Portland, and uh, he, I, he's, he's been a mentor to me, and, and he was debating this issue, and uh, he's just, he's 75 years old, he's just such a kind lovely man, and he knows the Bible so well. And he's just going through his presentation. And, and the, the other guy debating the other side is a younger guy. He also knew the scriptures really well, but he was in it to win it, right? He was like, he was going after it and laying out his arguments and his syllogisms and doing his evidence and stuff. And partway through Gary's presentation, he had his, uh, he had his laptop up on the screen and he was showing Bible verses and stuff. And, and he just flips over to a picture of his wife. And, and he goes, that's my beautiful wife. Isn't she lovely? And everybody in the audience goes, aww. And I thought, man, you just won the debate. <laughs> because, see, Gary, as a 75-year-old man who has been married for many, many, many years, is devoted to his wife. He can't get enough of his wife. He talks about his wife all the time. Paul says we need to be devoted to prayer. And in my life, I'm, I'm devoted to many things. It's often said that you can, you can tell what you care about by your calendar and your bank account, right? What do, you, what do you schedule? What do you do? How do you spend your time? What do you spend your money on? Those kind of things. Those are good questions. I would also say, what do you talk about? What are your conversations about? Could you even have a conversation for any length of time about prayer? And that's not meant to be an accusation against us, but just a question. If we're meant to be devoted to prayer, is that something that we could say, hey, let's just, how's your prayer life going? And actually have a response that's excited and life-giving and fruitful? Well, let me tell you what God's been saying to me. Oh, it's been so good. I've been getting up earlier. I've been staying up. I've been putting the kids to bed and staying up late. And Jesus has just been so good to me. Or we got together in our small group or we came to the prayer night or, or whatever the thing is. Are we devoted to this thing? And if we're not, this is devastating for us. R.A. Torrey, who is a a Christian leader in, in the early 20th century. In, in 1924, he wrote in The Power of Prayer, he said, we do not live in a praying age. A considerable proportion of the membership of our evangelical churches today do not believe even theologically in prayer. That is, they do not believe in prayer as bringing anything to pass that would not have come to pass even if they had not prayed. He says, we are not a praying people. And sometimes we, the reason we're not a praying people is we just don't think it matters. It just doesn't do anything. And yet, more than any generation before us, we are a worried people. We are an anxious people. We get angry and scared and riddled with anxiety about what's going on outside. Here's Tory again. He says, if you will study the history of revivals, you will find that every real revival in the church has been the result of prayer. There have been revivals without much preaching, 
There have been revivals with absolutely no organization, but there has never been a mighty revival without mighty praying. And that's the paradox of our situation. We, by and large, as a generation of Christian people, are not praying people, but we are worried people. We are anxious people. We look out at the world and are afraid of what we see and are are, are desirous that God would do something different, but that doesn't move us to prayer. It just fuels our anxiety. But I think, I think the Holy Spirit is beginning to do something in the church in our country and around the world in this generation that's special. And church leaders around the world from from various different tribes and affiliations and denominations have been talking about this for several years of sensing the idea that the Spirit is moving. I just read a book by a pastor named Mark Sayers called A Non-Anxious Presence. And he talks about how we are in the middle of what he calls a gray zone, a transition between two eras. He says the, the previous era of the, the world's culture and economy and the way everything worked is, is passing away and we're entering into a new one. And that manifested itself with this pandemic and the elections and the economy and, and China and Russia and all the things that are on our radar that are really freaking us out are symptoms of the fact that something big is changing in the world. And what that does is it makes us upset. It makes us anxious because for most of us, some of us in this room, maybe I think everybody else went downstairs, most of us lived in the last era. We were comfortable in the last era. We, we understood how the world worked. And now it feels uncomfortable and uncertain. And I don't feel like my life is built on a solid foundation. And it's scary. But here's the thing. In Sayer's book, he says, these are the points in history, and he maps them out, when things are uncertain, when things are changing, when great geopolitical, economic, ethnic changes and challenges are taking place. These are the eras in history that God uses to work specially in the world and bring revival. Because everything has been upended and people are ready to listen to the Spirit of God. And the good news, Christian, this morning is that you have been chosen to live through this moment in history. As much as as it may seem unsettling, God has decided to let you be the ones to be his witnesses to the world at this time. And we are entering into a space where Christianity isn't the cultural power that it used to be. Many, many people outright reject the Christian ethic and and many more just live a nominal Christianity. But I think that's a good thing because that means that maybe those of us that actually care about the gospel will pay attention to the power of God that exists inside of us. And if we're willing to pray and be devoted to it, I think we will see friends and neighbors come to Christ. I think we will see more human flourishing, not less. I I think we will see a lessening of violence and deviance in the culture, but it results from praying. And here's the thing, if we're going to be serious about critiquing the broken culture around us, and I absolutely believe that the church has a prophetic role to look at what's going wrong in the culture and say, that is not okay. 
we're going to be hypocrites if we're not devoted to prayer. Because we're just pretending to care. If we're not going to be serious about coming to the Lord in prayer and, and petitioning Him and, and asking for forgiveness for the, part, the way that we've participated in the brokenness of the world and, and seeking to be lights, we don't really care about the broken situation. Paul says, be devoted to prayer. And then he says, stay alert, guard your prayer life, protect it, care for it, pay attention to it. Because see, the enemy of our souls wants our prayer life. He wants to shipwreck our prayer. You probably saw in the news a couple months ago, um, the farmer that stole the Russian tank, the Ukrainian farmer, you probably, maybe you saw the picture of him like with a chain to his John Deere dragging this giant Russian tank across his field. That's kind of an absurd reality because this farmer, this, this simple, normal man with a tractor took this mighty, powerful weapon of this world superpower not because he was more powerful than the Russian army, but because the Russians were too busy. They were too preoccupied. They were too overextended to make use of this powerful weapon. And they ignored it. And the Ukrainian farmers just towed him away. And praise God for the resilience of the Ukrainian people in this war. But it's not that Satan can get you. It's not that Satan has more power than God. It's not that he can overwhelm you with his forces. It's simply that you are ignoring your weapons if you are not praying. And he can just drag them away because you're too busy, too preoccupied, too overextended. And I know this is true in my life, Seasons when, when I get up in the morning and I think, God, oh, I'm just so busy today. I don't have time to pray. I'll do it tomorrow. And that's always a mistake. How do we guard this powerful weapon? Paul says, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is living in an awareness of who God is and what he is doing and how good he is to us. And thankfulness is a discipline that we need to practice because we're all in a place where it's easy to not be thankful. No, no matter whether it's your finances or your relationships or your health or, or your work situation, it's easy to find something to complain about. It's easy to find something that's not going your way. But it's a discipline. It takes work. It takes practice to look at those things and go, you know what? I can see the grace of God in this. I can see the love of God for me and my neighbor in this, and I am going to be thankful. And cultivating that perspective in your heart is going to fuel your prayer life. Paul goes on and says, at the same time, pray also for us. He wants the Colossians to pray for him. Like the most successful missionary in the history of the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, specially called, like Jesus showed up visibly in front of Paul and says, I want you to work for me. 
And Paul says, man, Colossian church, I really need your prayers. The Colossians' prayers are integral to the success of Paul's ministry. They matter. David Powell says it this way, to Paul, prayer is not simply an act of presenting one's personal wishes and desires to God. Rather, it's a way for believers to participate in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in history. And I'm afraid that this is something that we don't always believe. We just, we just don't believe that our prayer matters that much. It leads us to not pray for others. It leads us to not ask for prayer for ourselves. Maybe that's even worse. We think, you know what? I don't want to bother people with my burdens. They don't need to know what's going on in my life. I just need to come to church and put on a happy face, say everything's great, God is good. But the reality is if we're struggling, we should be the first people to go to others and say, hey, will you pray for me? We just have people in our phones that we can text and say, I need prayer. This is what's going on. Who we know will just drop everything and do it. Prayer is vital for our relationship with the world outside. But prayer translates into the second point, which is action. We keep reading Colossians 4.3, pray for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Paul's prayer request sheds light on how we should seek to act in God's kingdom. Paul has this special calling. He's an apostle. And, and we shouldn't automatically assume that everything about Paul's life is directly transferable to our lives. But there's a couple things we can learn here. He says, pray that God would open a door. Paul believes that it's God's power that's directing his life. Paul doesn't assume that every moment is the right moment to share the gospel with people but he's on the lookout for the moments that God provides. And I think that is, that's been such an important part of my prayer life in this season, to be aware of moments, of opportunities. Sometimes it's an opportunity to just lay out the gospel to somebody. Sometimes it's an opportunity just for kindness and to begin a relationship. But I, my personality, those of you that know me, I'm... I'm fully um, just satisfied. Well, I'm extra satisfied not going to the grocery store. But if I go to the grocery store, I am satisfied with not making eye contact with anybody. Self-checkout is the best thing in the world. Like, I don't want to do any of it. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to get my stuff. My, My wonderful wife is so good at shopping. She will make me a list if I have to go in the order of the things as I will interact with them in the store. So I just have to make a single loop and I never have to go back or go around. It's great. But I go to the store and I go, God, is there an open door here? I don't, I don't want an open door. I don't want to go through a door, but maybe you do. Maybe you have an opportunity here for me. Maybe there's somebody that I can speak to. Maybe it's just a a conversation and checkout. Maybe I should actually go stand in the line with the teller that's really slow and wait there and listen and strike up a conversation. I don't want to do that, but 
I want to be open to what you want to do. So Paul is looking for an open door. But notice what he's looking for an open door for, for the word. A lot of us use this open door language for maybe a job. You know, I'm, I'm throwing out my resume and I'm seeing if there's an open door to get a new job. I want to go to Mexico on vacation and see if God's going to open a door. That's fine. But Paul's talking about the word of God. He's talking about sharing the gospel with somebody in need. And I think there's kind of a paralysis that can set in in our hearts when our posture about this is just passively waiting. You know, we, we envision that there is a door that we want to walk through, and we're going to sit in front of it and wait for God to open it. But I think the reality is, to use this illustration, we're in a really big room with hundreds of doors. And if we're staring at a particular door, there are so many doors in this room that we can't see. And I just imagine Paul being on the lookout for the open door, turning around in circles and looking up and down and, and listening for a creak in the hinges. Because maybe the door that you think should open, maybe the door that you've got your heart set on is absolutely not the door. Maybe that door's behind you. Pray that God may open a door for the word. He doesn't say pray that God would open a door to let me out of prison. He's not concerned about himself. He recognizes that, that maybe the open door was the one that got him into prison. Maybe there are people in the prison that need to hear about Jesus that would not hear about it if that wasn't the door that God had him walk through. He sees that the gospel, the power of God is going to change lives. It's not me. It's not you. It's the good news about Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, act wisely towards outsiders, you Colossians. And this brings up something that, again, is, is, is uncomfortable for our cultural moment. There is an inside and an outside to the Christian community. It's important to remember that, especially when our culture finds that idea repulsive. Scott McKnight writes, call it sectarian or even othering. The point remains that for Paul and his mission, there is a focus on forming Christian fellowships, churches, of the redeemed, and perceiving those outside the other as having not yet made the transition across the threshold into the body of Christ. As much as we want to be open and welcoming and hospitable, and all of those things are good, and we want to be about that kind of work in the world, we have to recognize that if you are a Christian, you've been made alive. You've been made brand new. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been saved from sin and death and destruction. You've been given new life, been made a new creation, been adopted into the family of God. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, none of that is true for you. And that's not a judgment against you based on anything special about you. That's how we all come into the world. 
But it is an invitation to say, if that's you this morning, if you haven't accepted Christ and bowed your knee to Jesus, you can. You can, like McKnight says, you can cross, cross the threshold and become part of the family of God if you want to. But we have to remember that there is a fundamental difference between the one that is Christ's and the one that is not. And then he says that we should make most of the time because the fact is we have limited time, don't we? This is true about my life personally, and this is true about the world as we know it. I don't know when I'm going to die, but it's sooner this morning than it was last week. I don't know when Christ is going to return to set up his kingdom, but it's sooner this morning than it was last week. Paul uses a Greek word here that means to redeem or to buy up. And we often understand this when it comes to money, to make best use of our money, but we forget it when it comes to time. Imagine a scenario where you make $40,000 a year for your salary. That works out to about $3,300 a month. And every month you take that $3,300 and you put it in the bank, but you take out $650 and you go to the dollar store and buy $650 worth of cheap plastic toys. It's 20% of your income every month. You just go to the dollar store and just buy everything that you can find. That'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? Like, what would you, what, why are you doing that? That's a lot of money. That's, that's junk. But most of us spend about five hours a day on our phones. That's 20% of our time. And for some of us, maybe it's really important things, but for many of us, it's, it's not, is it? It's just this thing that we, we do to just absorb the time. And we would look at the person that spends 20% of their income on cheap, breakable toys and go, that is foolish. And then we spend the same amount of our time on foolish, cheap things. We all have the same amount of time every day. And we've been invited, church, to participate in the mission of God. Sometimes those doors that get opened for the Word, they're not super comfortable. They're difficult to walk through. Paul says, make the most of the time. And we think, okay, I'm going to, I've got this like magical, like perfect Instagram kind of how I'm going to interact with the world and bring people to Christ and be winsome and and neighborly and, and do good works for the sake of the kingdom and all that stuff. But sometimes life doesn't work that way. For those of you that got my email earlier this week, one of the things I highlighted was the story of Hinson Baptist Church in Portland. They're a member of Church Venture Northwest, a member of our covenant community, and they are uh, actually one of the founding churches from back in the 1940s when our covenant community was birthed. And um, they're just, it's such a cool church building downtown in Portland. It's like, it looks like a castle. 
It's, it's fun. But on Monday, they got a call from the Portland police and said, hey, just so you know, we have credible evidence that about 100 people are going to show up at your building in a, in a, in, in a short amount of time, and, and they're there to, to break things and, and make a mess uh, because they, they um, reserve part of their building for a crisis pregnancy center. And the crazy thing is, I mean, the police knew about it, and the police showed up. Um, they got a bunch of people together. They went to Lowe's and got a bunch of plywood and started boarding up windows as fast as they could. They got it about halfway done before the mob showed up. And somewhere between 75 and 100 people dressed in black and wearing masks and um, shouting obscenities marched around their building and broke every single window and spray-painted obscenities on all the walls of their building while the police just stood there and watched because they don't have the authority or the ability to intervene. And that's pretty rough, isn't it? Another thing that they have in their building is they have a coffee shop. A coffee shop that faces into their largely non-Christian neighborhood and is frequented by men and women, most of whom are not Christians, day after day after day. And so Pastor Michael Lawrence, he met with the coffee shop manager to say, okay, tomorrow a bunch of people are going to show up for coffee. What are we going to do about that? And he says, many people are asking us this morning how we're doing. And every one of those conversations is an opportunity to explain our hope in Christ. Isn't that awesome? That in this, this, this situation that's just objectively terrible, the community of God's people at this church who have had literally an act of violence committed against them, their thought is, how do we leverage this for the kingdom? How do we use this opportunity to talk about how great Jesus is? Sometimes the open doors are difficult. So what are the opportunities for you and me to make the most of the time that we have and find those open doors for the word? Paul says that our actions towards those out in the world matter, but so does the way we speak. Take a look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. We are in a really weird cultural moment where, where some, um, some people in the church are I have a really hard time with this idea that, that we are in a place culturally where the, the church has enemies. And those enemies, they're not going to be gracious. They're not going to be kind. And so in order to stand up against our enemies, we need to fight fire with fire. We need to push back hard. We need to be loud. And that sounds... That sounds really good. That sounds right in kind of a fight club sort of way. But it's just, it's just not what Scripture calls us to. 
It's not what Paul says here. And this is, Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 3. He says, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. This is, this is a hard word for us because it feels right to fight the way the world fights, to use the weapons that the world uses. But it goes against the dictates of King Jesus, who has a very different way of winning battles. And I would encourage us all to pay attention to this in the people that we follow. We all have lots of influences. I will make, um, I, I absolutely understand that a talk on Sunday morning from me is nothing compared to all of the voices that all of us hear throughout the week, whether you're watching social media videos or listening to podcasts or reading books or listening to Christian radio. And that's great. I love that. And I think we should all be doing those kind of things. But pay attention to the people that you let influence you. Even if their doctrine is sound, are they gracious? Are they kind? Or have they built a platform for themselves on being snarky and mean? And if they have, I would just submit to you, don't put a lot of stock in their counsel. Because even if they have all the correct answers about doctrine, they are not embodying the fruit of the Spirit of God in the way they present them. And that is something that we all <laughs> have the privilege of growing in. Paul says that our speech should be seasoned with salt. I was at the... Um, I was at the hospital visiting someone this last week, and, and they, had, um, they had a pile, a small pile of hospital food next to their bed. And uh, I, I said, hey, you're, you're not eating your food. And, and he said, the, yeah, it's the problem with the way that the hospital seasons things. They don't. And that, I get that because, you know, you got a lot of different people coming through the hospital, and it's, it's hard to work with everybody's tastes. But... The unfortunate thing was the, fa the fact that the food didn't taste good prevented my friend from wanting to eat it, and he needed to eat. Our speech should be seasoned with salt. Non-Christians should enjoy your presence and be attracted to your speech, even if they disagree with you about really important fundamental things. We should be people who are compelling because the gospel is compelling. It's the best news, you guys. God loves you. Jesus rescued you from sin and death. He has made you new and promised you a future forever with him in his kingdom and abundant life right now. That's amazing. 
The funny thing is, is the witness of the church in our time is, is very much not that. It seems as though I meet people frequently who are surprised when they find out that I am a Christian because what they've been led to believe, either in their personal interactions with people or from like what they see online, is that Christians are jerks. Christians are mean. Christians are bigots. And that should not be so. We have a very different way of seeing the world than many people, but people should... Even if they don't believe what we say, they should recognize that we are an asset to the community, that we are good neighbors, that we're fun, that we're joyful. Our conversation should be seasoned with salt. If people can't hear the good news about Jesus because you're a jerk, that's not the gospel's fault, that's your problem. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. I love this. Paul is aware that we are all unique people, aren't we? And we need to be aware of that when we share the good news about Jesus with others. This is one thing, and I I don't want to be too critical because God calls people to things and God works in amazing ways. But when I see somebody on a street corner with a bullhorn sometimes yelling, but even not yelling, just proclaiming the gospel on the corner. I just, I have questions because hundreds of people are going to walk by and they're not going to hear the good news. I mean, technically they probably will, but whatever that dynamic is, it's not really going to reach them. And it might be that a few people it does reach and praise God for that. God can work in all kinds of crazy situations But the person that takes a method and says, this is how you preach the gospel to all people, and this is how I'm going to do it, I think misses out on the fact that we're all different people with all different life circumstances and all different ways that the good news impacts our souls. A Christian named Ambrosiaster, actually, we we don't know who this person is. Ambrosiaster means would-be Ambrose, because for a long time, we thought this was written by a church father named Ambrose in the fourth century but everybody's decided that it wasn't written by him. And so now we don't know who this was, but early church leader writes this. Paul therefore tells us that we should discuss religion at the right time and place and in great humility and keep quiet if one of these people is shouting at us in public. We should behave one way toward the powerful, another way toward the middle class, another way towards those lower down on the social scale, and yet another way to those who are gentle and another way to those who are irritable. Letting them be is redeeming the time, because if you give way to someone who attacks the Lord's words or who rages because he is free to do so, you you turn the insults of this unhappy experience into gain. Ambrosiaster says, different people will experience the good news of Jesus differently, and we need to be aware of that when we talk with them. People have different life circumstances, and they will respond to our words in different ways. And it's on us to figure out how to engage with them. And then he says, sometimes the best thing to do is keep quiet and wait for another time. That's good advice. But this is also why it's not my job to be the professional evangelist. It's my job to share my faith. But we all interact with different people every day in our lives in different ways that I just don't have the capacity or the ability to interact with. 
And the fact that Jesus is in each one of you, Christian, he is there to show off his goodness to the people in our lives. Matt Michelatos wrote a book called Good News for a Change. I think we have a few copies in our church library. And and he talks about contextualizing the gospel to the people that we know. Because there will be a difference between talking to Jesus with a struggling single mom and talking about Jesus with a high-profile banker, right? Their life circumstances are going to be different. And the way that Jesus' good news, Jesus' good news is unchanging, but the way it applies specifically to each person is going to be different. And Paul says, you need to know how you should answer each person that you talk with. We live in a world where our disagreements, um, in our disagreements, we often talk past each other, right? And we don't listen to each other. We don't really try to understand each other. We just kind of yell across the room. And we need to be people that learn to communicate the gospel in a language that our conversation partner can understand. A few nights ago, uh, Joanna and I were watching a YouTube video of an Irish comedian. And she was in Ireland, I think, and she was doing her set. And I honestly understood about 75% of it. I mean, it was in English, but like the, she'd get to the punchline of the joke and be like, yeah, I don't know what that word means. And everyone would laugh. It was obviously very funny. Now, if I really wanted to understand the joke, I could like do a deep dive into Irish folk culture and slang and idioms and really figure out what all this stuff means. But the thing is, I just don't really care that much. That comedy sketch wasn't that important to me. And the reality is, most of the people that we know that aren't Christians aren't on a pilgrimage for truth. They're they're not like doing a deep dive into church history and systematic theology to figure out what the true faith is. And I know there are people that have that story, but most people that we live around have jobs and kids and vacations and stresses, and they're just like you and me. And to communicate the gospel in a way that doesn't make sense and is hard to understand, they're not going to be like, wow, I wonder what they meant by substitutionary atonement. I'm going to have to go look that up because that's a really important thing for me to figure out. No, they're just going to blow it off because it doesn't matter to them. See, if we want the good news of Jesus to land for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for our friends, we have to learn to communicate in a way that they can easily receive. And that's going to require relationship. That's going to require getting to know them. And it's going to be different with every single person. Paul says, because Jesus is so amazing, because he has saved you from your sin, because he has made you alive and adopted you into the kingdom of God. We all have the opportunity to be on his mission in the world. So what's our role as Christians in a non-Christian culture? We're to be people devoted to prayer 
be consistent in it, to take it seriously, to believe that it actually does something because God says that it does. Then we're to be committed to taking steps to present the gospel to those who do not know Christ, whatever that looks like in our context. We're not all called to be the Apostle Paul, but we are all called to share the gospel. And thirdly, to make sure that even if the message of the gospel is offensive, that our speech is gracious and winsome. So we're going we're gonna to take communion like we always do. In this passage, Paul calls the gospel the mystery of Christ. He says that this idea that the, the being that created and oversees the universe deeply, personally loves you that he wants you to be his. And that he went to such great lengths to secure your salvation by becoming a human being himself, by living a perfect, sinless life, and by allowing himself to be murdered for your sins in your place. This is the mystery of Christ. We wouldn't have written the story that way. We wouldn't have created a religion built around these ideas. But this is how God has chosen to work in the world. And so we remember the love of God today for us in the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And as we celebrate our salvation this morning, I would just invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about who is in your life that he wants you to share the good news about Jesus with. Who is in your life? What are the doors that have been opened for you to speak the good news of Jesus in a way that your friends and neighbors and coworkers can understand? So take the bread and the cup, Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, and take it back to your seat and um, just spend a few moments thinking about who those people are and recommit yourself to serving Christ being obedient to him in everything that he calls you to. If you want to sit or stand as we sing, if you want to come up and kneel in the front, you know, the prayer rugs, you're welcome to do that. Let's pray together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene Podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.